And then all it took was one person to yell, Dean Reed. And all of a sudden there was mobs, a, a ton of people that just swarmed him. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Ramona Reed's father was Dean Reed, an American actor, singer and songwriter, director and socialist who became a huge star in Latin America and the Eastern Bloc. Now, if you like the podcast, you can help to support us for the price of a couple of coffees a month. You'll be helping cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. There's loads of options there. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If that's not your cup of tea, you can also help us by placing a written review on iTunes. This helps us raise our profile and get new guests on the show. So back to today's episode. Ramona was born in 1968 and gives insight into Dean Reed's life via private correspondence, but also what it was like to be the daughter of such a huge Eastern Bloc star. We welcome Ramona Reed to our Cold War conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about your father's early life and and family? Yes. So um, he was very much a competitor. He loved sports. So that he was a, a really good basketball player and and into track and competing in rodeos. He learned how to. He got his first horse at uh, at eleven years old. And he learned how to ride it. And then he started to work on dude ranches and um, he got a guitar at 12 and he loved the response with the guitar. And of course, you know, when he became a a teenager, you know, he was very popular with the tourists at these dude ranches and of course the girls. And so that was always fun for a teenager. But um then he, you know, in his early singing career, he'd work in bars and, and clubs while he was going to college. And then, uh, you know, and I'm kind of fast forwarding a little bit, but then he goes to Hollywood for a week. I think during his second time, uh, second year of college, he goes to Hollywood and within a week, Capital signs him, which was huge. Wow. And. And so, I mean, he met with the president and then they wanted him to meet the next day with some other people. And the third day he was signed and he had a seven year contract with them. So he left his uh, major of meteorology <laughs> and decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give this a go and 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 ended up in Hollywood that way. Wow. Wow, I mean that, that that's incredible. I mean he certainly I think it's safe to say your father had the film star looks. He did, didn't he? He was so gorgeous. <laughs> but you know the funny thing is is that he's got this great, you know, you, you need kind of a package deal, right? So um you you have the the looks, the you know, he had um he was a stunt man as well. He did his own stunts. He sang, he engaged people and he cared about people. 
And so it was, it was one of those perfect kind of storms that when he hit, he hit hard. Although I have to say his first two albums that uh, were produced in Hollywood was not, uh, they didn't hit number one. They weren't successful. Um, and at that time, he also was living with Peyton Price, who became his coach, mentor, best friend. And, um, and I think that's where, you know, uh, there was some groundwork that was laid in looking for your life's purpose, you know, seek the truth. And I have a quote here from Peyton Price. Um, again, Peyton was incredibly important to him. And he was, oh, by the way, Peyton Price was the acting coach for Warner Brothers. So anybody, any uh, actor who was signed, Warner Brothers would immediately send them to Peyton Price. And, um, but Peyton took a, an immediate liking to Dean and, um, and he would often say, you know, how are you going to build a house if the foundation's not solid? How are you going to arouse feelings in your audience if you yourself do not have those feelings? And how do you talk about truth when you don't believe in it? And how can you re represent truth if you are a liar? Seek the truth. And if you look at uh, my papa's, Dean's entire life, you can see where that quote, where that teaching just applied to everything that he did in his life. It was literally the foundation that he lived off of. So then he, he wanted to go seek the truth. Uh, it, it's interesting because you you know you, you often think of I don't know sometimes you think of actors as being quite you know quite shallow and that and those words of of Peyton Price sort of uh, seem seem you know qu quite different to to what you'd what you'd expect from I don't know from, not necessarily from an acting coach but from certainly somebody involved in the entertainment business. Well, exactly, and and especially at that time. And, and, you know, in those quiet moments when no one's around um, and, and when they would write letters back and forth, you know, Peyton knew the machine, the Hollywood machine and how it worked. And it was strictly a business. And so to your point, uh, after those two albums were not a success, he was brought back into Capitol Records, uh, Papa was, and and he thought for sure they were going to drop his contract. But instead, they had a team of people there, right? A PR person, a business manager, this and that. And they said, okay, so you need to start writing these kind of songs. You need to change your look. You need to, you know, change your hair. You need to. And so all of a sudden, he just, you know, thought, you know, this is not what I want to be doing. I'm not going to be changing to fit your mold. When, you know, this, you know, I have a perp I have something to say. And, and so, and he, I'll tell you, money was not his motivator. So he, he never, you know, that wasn't something that he went out to go do and have the biggest, the nicest car and the biggest house and that kind of thing. It wasn't about money. It was about really, and I keep saying this is, is just purpose in, and he was trying to find that. And it came along, uh, the opportunity came along when, uh, he did have one hit single on his third album, One Summer Love, and it it hit. And it was a big hit in Latin America. So Capital called him in again and said, we're going to we're going to give you a tour. You're going to tour uh, Brazil, Argentina, Peru and uh, somewhere else. And um, 
and we're going to send you on that tour, and, and it's really a big hit there. And then the minute he landed, that's where his whole life changed in so many areas, in, including music, politics, you know, um, his, his life's purpose. I mean, there's just, and that's also where he, and, and this is noted in other places, but he understood that there were three types of people, you know, and that's the revolutionaries, the privileged and the blind. And after the glitz and glamour of touring, he started to see the underprivileged people and how they, how they lived and how they didn't have medical and they didn't have the things that they needed to, to live. Um, and that's when he said, well, okay, well, I'm no longer blind. So, and I'm not privileged. So I'm going to become a revolutionary and I'm going to speak on behalf of the people. And I'm going to, and, and what made him different, and I'll, I'll give you a minute, because this is your show. You should probably be talking. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they, I, I'm here to hear, people are here to hear my guests, not me. <laughs> but the thing was, is that, you know, that's where he did find where, listen, I'm going to use my platform because he sold out all the concerts, right? All, all his concerts were sold out. He was mobbed, you know, and, and it was it was a lot of hard work for him, but he wanted to connect. And that's where, you know, that saying that Peyton said is you've got to, to arouse feelings in your audience. So you've got to be energetic. I don't know if you've seen, you know, any of his um, uh, concerts or anything like that on video, but he was so energetic and, and would jump off the stage and would sit on the laps of, of girls and have them sing with him. And he would just, even if he had to force it, he wouldn't have make them engage and have a great time. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen some of those videos and uh, he definitely doesn't stay still for long. No. And, but that's what made him different. So, so, you know, even in Latin America, but even in Russia, and and the Eastern Bloc, that's what made him so different. He wasn't just standing there and, and singing a song. He was actually going out, and once he stopped playing guitar, he would go out and get them dancing and get them up. And the funny thing is, you know, KGB or or Stasi or, or whoever, you know, what I hear is normally they would push people down back into their seats. With him, because he was invited, they decided to allow the youth and the, all ages, multi-generational um, audiences to go ahead and stand and clap and do whatever they wanted to do. So it, that was a huge deal. That was a first. Yeah. And uh, what was he his politics left wing before he toured South America or was that the catalyst that sort of changed his world viewpoint? Well, because of his earlier uh, teachings by Peyton about seeking the truth, that, like I said, that did do the foundation, but it was South America that, that, you know, when he saw the two different classes, there was no middle class. You were either really privileged and controlled everything, or you were really poor and, um, and poverty stricken. And so, I think he, and this is my opinion, I believe that he would look at that and say, okay, well, I can draw hundreds of thousands of people to to notice and fight for the things that they want 
to fight for and also be friends and create relationships with dignitaries and and government officials and see if we can make change. But at least I and, and really what ended up happening there is that people started to notice, you know, up on higher levels that he can actually change votes. He can change really the atmosphere of the politics that were going on and policies and, and regulations. So so I think he wanted to to do that. And that's when he said, okay, this is what I want to I want to do. Would he have described himself as a as a Marxist at that point, or was he still trying to find his way as to his politics? Obviously left wing, but it was left wing. I think it was later in life that he would say, I believe in Karl Marx theory. But uh he would he was really looking for educating himself in every country that he went into first, right? So he would dive in. Like I said, he was a ferocious reader and writer. Um, uh, you know, at the time he was in South America, they were doing a, atomic uh, testing. And he tested out his power a little bit. And he's, he asked the Chileans, please send in letters to President Kennedy. And, and you know, and, and we can't have this testing. We need peace and, and solidarity. And, and, and people started to notice that, including our government, right? And that's when CIA and FBI started to come in and report on him. And that's when surveillance started to happen, was in South America. But as far as Marxism, I think that he was looking for the best way to change people's lives for the better. And if that's just, you know, and and you have to think of it when you were in South America right now, and we'll soon go to Russia in a minute. But, you know, I think, like I said, he dove in and he looked at what was the best that worked in those countries. And he would take a little from this bucket and he would take a little bit of the freedom of speech that he liked in America. And he would take, you know, the socialism from the Eastern Bloc and he would take some things from there that he liked. And it's, it was almost like he was trying to create this, this great world of peace and solidarity and opportunity from a little bit of each policy from each country. Yeah. So he wasn't really uh, tied to any particular ideology his his view um, i don't want to use the word simplistic but a straightforward view that he wanted to help those that were un- underprivileged and reduce those inequalities within those countries and within other countries yes and 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 however he could do that he would work with those higher levels and at least draw attention to it yeah you know, if, if nothing else, he, you know, people would call him and he would go visit and he would actually, if they're camping outside and, and you know, um, it, he would stay there and actually almost live their life to really get a sense of what's going on. Not a lot of people did that, yeah. right? A, a lot of people just kind of hear, oh, we need to save the children or whatever. But, you know, they don't stay there and that kind of, in those yeah. days. And remember, we were in those days we were being brainwashed, right? Remember, Russia was bad. They were the enemy. <laughs> and, you know, and and you know, he would go over there and have a great time, meet the people, connect with them and say, "You know what? They're just like us. They want peace. They don't want any of this war." And so it it was it was 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Yeah, it was it was interesting how he just kind of broke through so many barriers through his music and his film. Yeah, which which we will come come on to uh, in a moment. I mean, one of the things you, you you said a moment ago is that people in positions of influence uh, began to notice him outside of the entertainment industry. Obviously, you mentioned the CIA, and they would obviously be he would be of interest to them because he is supporting regimes or governments which they they don't want supported and i guess the the obvious one is allende in chile was he invited into some of these countries once it became aware there was this american star who supported left-wing governments well yes right i mean uh once you know people understood that he was sympathetic and that he 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 wanted to Again, I'll just keep going back to bettering the lives of people. Um, in his mind, if I can bring thousands, of hundreds of thousands of people to cha- to bring change, then that's going to be my purpose. And and so when for Salvador Allende, I mean, he was the the first socialist president voted in. I know that he was. They were friends beforehand, along with uh, Pablo and and Victor Hara. And he loved Chile. Chile, he would say, was his second home. And, you know, he really believed in in what Salvador Allende was pushing for. And, and that was something they they agreed on. And, and so I think that he was instrumental in getting him in office and getting attention, you know, and, and doing concerts and and campaigning, so to speak. For Salvador Allende, but that's really interesting. And and when when was he first invited to the Eastern Bloc to perform? Well, um, so Pablo, uh, I always mess up his last name, Neruda. Pablo Neruda um, invited him to the 1965 Peace Conference in Helsinki, and uh, that's where you know uh, it. Everybody there was there for peace, ex- except China kind of took a turn there uh, for a second. And Dean Pa was only supposed to be singing for 10 minutes. He was part of the entertainment, also reporting and, and meeting some of the people. He was a delegate of Argentina at that point. And um, so once uh, there was some tension in that conference, and people were starting to shout and, and, you know, and, and, and it started to break up and it, it, it was really unfortunate. 
Papa went up on stage immediately and, and of course, started to sing and sing We Shall Overcome. And by the end of the song, everybody was holding hands and singing with him and forgot about the tension. And, and he basically reminded them of what we're trying to accomplish wow. here. And so it was, it was a very pivotal moment. Well, this is about the time, right? This is what, 1965. So this is about the time where, you know, it, for my research, and I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert in this, but in my research, you know, this was a time where the youth in Russia, you know, they were, they were starting to, I think they're called bone records, but they were, they were trying to, in the black market, they were trying to get rock and roll uh, records and, and they were very frustrated. They wanted, you know, a little bit of freedom. And, and so the Russian delegates there and, and uh, dignitaries, they looked at this man, this tall, beautiful, who can actually turn around the feeling, the emotions of this very important conference and said, you know what? We need to have him in our country. Let's let he can bring our youth together. And 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 if we give them, you know, rock and roll, a Western looking rock and roll singer who you know, believes in socialism and, and that kind of thing. I think that's going to be, you know, something that's going to be powerful. And that's where right. he was invited. So the very, the very next year, 1966, he, he did a tour, three month tour, 24 sold out concerts in nine cities. Uh, the same year he signed with the top Russian record company, company, uh, uh, Melodian, something like that. And produced the first rock and roll album for Russia. And so, and, uh, you know, and unlike in the U.S., his first album sold over four million copies. He was in every magazine, newspaper. He was not just an artist. He was an advocate for the Russian people. And, and, and they, they really, really loved him. They loved him for that. It wasn't like he was just an artist singing and then he left. He spent time there. And got to know everybody, so it it it, it was it was a another pivotal moment. Yeah. So so you think you know the the Soviets saw this as a an opportunity to fulfill some of the the demand for Western style music, but with a musician who was obviously of a a socialist viewpoint. Yeah. And, you know, you know, everyone says, well, he was a propaganda tool and, and, you know, and that, listen, at the end of the day, I think nowadays we can probably see that, you know, it was a give and take situation. He absolutely, they may have used him to, to, you know, help them out uh, with the youth and the population that's coming up, that kind of thing. But he loved the fact that at any point in time, he really could do anything. He always held his U.S. passport. He was able to make films. They gave him contracts. So in those days, right, we didn't have any social media. <laughs> you know, there was no Facebook or Instagram or whatever, t Twitter. And um, he but he was able to almost just collect an, an enormous amount of people and and make change 
And so I think because he wanted to find truth and a better way for people's lives, they allowed him by making films and making films that he wrote, directed, and, and having concerts and so that he can sing his songs, rock and roll, peace songs, political songs, whatever. So it, I think it was a two-way street there. So so he was it was almost you know they they gave him the ability to pursue the artistic freedoms that he wouldn't have had with Capitol Records or or in the US. Very well put. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and um and what the what was the reaction of the of the youth to this um this art artist of a of a style that they'd probably never seen before and only heard through i don't know listening to uh western radio well like i said he you know it it was a mob scene everywhere he went and a funny story so um so in 1985 i was able to go and spend a month with him and and within that month was the world youth festival in moscow and so he was headlining and, and uh, doing some concerts there. So he took me along. So it was my first time in Moscow. And the first night we were there, we were staying at Hotel Makba across from the square there. And he doesn't, you know, he didn't have PR people or business people or anything like that with him. But he came to my room and he said, come on, I'm, we're going to go take a walk. Now, he had something up his sleeve. I didn't know. I was just there. You know, I'm 17 years old and I'm having a great time. I'm spending time with my dad. And so he walks out the front. We walk into Lenin's uh, Red Square, Lenin Square. Red Square. And yeah. Lenin Square. Yeah. We walk there and it's at night. So there's not a lot of people around. There's, you know, every once in a while you see police. And he said, just, and, He'd gotten to the middle of that square and he said, just wait a second. I'm like, okay. And then all it took was one person to yell, Dean Reed. And <laughs> out of nowhere, now this square had five people, you know, in it at the most, I thought. All of a sudden there was mobs, a, a ton of people that just swarmed him. And, and, you know, he's signing, you know, he's doing his thing. Well, I got pushed back. I got pushed all the way back. So the first word that I learned in Russian was Georgka, because he was yelling at the, the police came to try and give him room to walk. And he would point to me and say, Georgka, Georgka. And so they let me through. And of course, uh, you know, I don't know, they have these, if you knew, but they have these metal pins for, you know, World Youth Festival that says uh, Moscow in the year and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so once they saw that I was his daughter, everybody was trying to give me these metal pins. Well, of course, I was getting stuck. Yeah. <laughs> they would give it to me and I would get stuck. And But so we they walked, the police walked us all the way back to the hotel. There was some stairs. He got up on the stairs. He put his, you know, hands up and, and said, you know, peace and he made some sort of uh um speech and i couldn't believe it. we got into the lobby of the hotel and i said okay this is going to be a different kind of a trip yeah yeah <laughs> I, I mean it was insane it was insane and then that night you know i couldn't sleep and because of what just happened and i was 
turning the channel on the TV and there's the news and they were announcing him for the festival. But then they also announced that his American daughter is here. And I just thought, oh, yeah, this is not I can't this is going to be different. I can't just walk out and and go to the store or do something. And so um, but, yeah, the the people he he loved them and they and they loved him. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a that's a lovely story, Ramona. I really appreciate you sharing sharing that 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 with us. So, in when he visits the Soviet Union, he's uh, married to your mother at, at this point. Yes. So no, no. In fact, um, so we're gonna take a trip back. Okay, <laughs> let's go back. Let, let's go back. And, um, and and it's a great, another great story. Um, we like good stories it, it, on this show, Ramona, so just keep them coming. Okay, okay, <laughs> all right. So um, so my mother and, and my papa told me the story. So how they met was she was living in Oceanside, and she had come up. She had won all the beauty pageants, and for Miss Universe, she was third runner-up. She was gorgeous. I mean, she was, and she had the thought of, she would try to teach me when you walk into a room, you have all eyes on you. You make sure of that when you enter an airplane, you, you wear your furs. And so when you go to sleep, you're surrounded, you know, by fur and you're always looking beautiful. I mean, you know, her best, her best friend was Sophia Loren. So they would they would run around Italy together, you know, young and attractive and sexy. So it was it was a great time. But anyway, so she was in Los Angeles to do a commercial and she was sitting in uh, the agent's office, her agent's office. You know, she had a little mini skirt, her long, beautiful, you know, tan legs. And he walked by to go see his agent. He walked by and he would say, I noticed her legs. And then I looked up and noticed her her face and how beautiful she was. So he when she left, he went to that agent and said, you must give me her phone number. And at that time, it wasn't like now. Right now, you you can't get phone numbers like that. But of course, at that time, he was like, "Okay, I'll give you her phone number. He called her a dozen times trying to get her to respond and, and to go out with him. And she didn't. She was actually also dating Les Brown, um, a musician. And so she agreed finally to go on a date with him. And they went to a party. And, um, and you know, he always brought his guitar and, you know, and, and always played with everybody. And, of course, when he walked in, all the women loved him. And so she didn't get the attention that she thought that she normally gets from the people that she dates. So she went to the bathroom and said, okay, well, we're on our own. We're going to do our own thing. And she comes back out and he plants one on her and kisses her in the hallway. And she said she comes out of it saying, well, I guess this is back on. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's what it's funny with them, because that with all his wives, I'll say, um, you know, there was always an element of a chase. The minute they turned around and looked the other way, that would catch his eye. It was it, he, he was so competitive also in his love life. Just there was a competition there and and she knew it. And so um, 
So yeah, I have more stories, but yeah. Right, right. <laughs> did did she share his political viewpoint? She was brought up to support her man, right? Right. So I'm going to say it that I'm going to say it that way. Um, but you know, when they hit. So when they got married and, and they hit Argentina and lived in Argentina and, and uh, he was given a TV series, he was doing films, he was doing concerts. It was a very exciting time. And you had to picture these two people in their 20s looking the best. They could be beautiful, tall. And, you know, they hit South America and it was just like, OK, so. You know, here comes in their day, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, Mm -hmm. you know, it was it was on. And so everyone could not get enough of them. So they created uh, a daily um, cartoon, you know, kind of a reality version of their so-called life and romance and what they were doing every day and that kind of stuff. So they were in the public eye at all times always being paparazzi everywhere at all times. And so they would have also people come over to the house, you know, like Che Guevara went there in the middle of the night and, and uh, when he would have certain guests on his shows, you know, there was, there were things that would start to happen. And, and she had to, you know, their, their house was shot up one night. And so she, you know, there, there was some great things, but there was also some very bad things, the things that come with, being outspoken. And so it, it, it was a, a great time, a fun time and, and they loved it. And then, then, um, you know, some things happened and, and they ended up in, um, Italy and that's where I was born. And, uh, they were together for about, oh, I don't know. I think in 71, they separated and then they divorced in 73. So he could marry Vivka. Right. Okay, so so you you were born in 1968, and if anyone does the math, I will know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, and uh, can you you take me through your names because you've got a, a very impressive um, list of uh, four names. Yeah, it you know uh, it was very important. Uh, it took a long time for them to uh, have me. So she went through five miscarriages. Um, and so she, when they finally uh, went past the first trimester, you know, she was bedridden and they were really, really trying to have a baby. And so when I did come along, uh, you know, he, again, very romantic. I mean, all his letters are so romantic and so powerful. And just so he wrote his first letter to his daughter explaining what each of my names mean. So my names are, are, my name is Ramona Shemaine Gavada Price Reed. Now I'm sure for some of your listeners, you can kind of figure where Gavada came from, right? It was Che Gavada. And also we talked about Peyton Price and uh, his, his friend, mentor and coach in Hollywood, you know, uh, he, made such a big impact throughout his life and guided him. And, and he would call him when he needed some inspiration or some guidance. So part of, part of my name was uh, price as well. Uh, but, you know, just to give you an example, you know, Shemaine, you know, was uh, they were on a date night and they saw a film El Cid and 
the hero was a very brave man who rode a white charger and dedicated his life to the people. And his wife, the beautiful Donna Shemaine, devoted her life to him. And he says here, uh, Patricia became my wife because she believed I was such a man in shining armor on a white horse. And life showed that the armor lost its shine and that white horse turned gray, but her romantic womanliness was unchanged. So your mother wished you to carry this name, Shemaine, so you would become such a woman. And so each of my names were just very thought through. And, you know, at the end of the day, he wanted me to live up to what I believed in and what I fought for and and also to be the feminine side. So and that's really in reality what ended up happening. I, I was very competitive. I was into sports when I grew up. He always when he talked with me over the phone or in letters, he wanted to know if I won the games in softball or racquetball or, you know, whatever I was track or whatever soccer, what I was doing. And then, you know, and then he wanted pictures of me and I was very feminine as well. So he, he loved that my mother raised me that way. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lovely photo I've seen on your website where your backs to the camera, you look like you're about five years old and he has his guitar and he's gazing at you. Um, and it's yeah. a be- it's a it's a lovely photo. It's the one that that stood out for me for for from from all of them because you can see um, his love for you in in his eyes. There, amazing photo. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, in this process, a year and a half ago, I started to something changed in my life where um, my my mother passed about two, three years ago. And she was really the matriarch, right? She she was the expert in in Dean Reed's story and 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 she lived it and and firsthand account. And, and like I said, they were best friends and and confidants throughout his life. But when and and she always tried to get me involved in in you know in him and his story and his that kind of thing and I you know I was growing up I was into Hollywood and and I had my friends and things like that I I didn't really want to deal with it but when she passed and I turned okay now we'll do the math now and I turned fifty you know there's a I think everyone can relate when you turn fifty or even forty you start to look back and kind of assess your life. And go, okay, so I may have 10, 20, 30 years left. I don't know. But what haven't I done that I want to accomplish? What what do I want to do? I don't want to have any kind of regrets. And it hit me that I need to really understand not only his entire life, but how he made decisions, how he impacted people. And then what I didn't realize is <laughs> that I was going to have to actually research the uh, social and political environment of each of those countries. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is that is a huge t- task to to overcome. But um, and, but I'm still doing it a year and a half later. And I've gotten through the 60s and I'm in the middle of the 70s. And I'm kind of putting off the 80s a little bit because of what happened. But 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 it it's. To your point of finding, people are sending me photographs and I'm finding photographs uh, that I've never seen or letters I've never seen that he sent to me or that of us together. And it's been, 
it's been enlightening and, and like I said before, magical. And I just, I love it. I love what, yeah. what I'm doing right yeah. now. Yeah, no, that, that that's great. And I, I appreciate you, you know, sharing those, those, those personal um, aspects w- with us. And wh- why did your, do you know why your, your parents did, did get divorced? Well, so um, I sighed. You probably everyone can hear that I sighed. You know, it's a complex answer. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I know, and and it's probably not not necessarily a a fair question. I mean, I I was imagining it, it might be some of the pressures that that she was getting at at home around his his political standpoint. I don't know. You are absolutely correct. Were you there? No. <laughs> So you're absolutely correct. And that's where I was going to go. You know, every time he would go off somewhere, you know, and, and fight for the good fight and, and he would risk his life. So therefore he would, he would write a farewell letter, (laughs) a letter to me and a letter to his wife. And, and after a while that gets a, that gets old, <laughs> number one. Number two, you know, uh, she started to become afraid of her daughter's life, that he would, unbeknownst to him, he would bring it back. And the people that, you know, uh, didn't like him would start to threaten his daughter or his wife. And this was a, a level of involvement that she didn't really want to be a part of. And they have many discussions, very heated. You know, she's very passionate. So is he. So it was, you know, they loved hard and they fought hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was very heated, uh, even in writing. That's how I know. And um, but the thing was, at the end of the day, he didn't want to put us in danger as well. And so, and it wasn't the type of family life that she envisioned as well, you know? So it, so it was, it was all of that put together, but they were very amicable and they were friends at the, at the heart of things. And, and so they just said to each other, you know, let's just stay married. And when the other finds someone that they want to marry, then we'll go ahead and get divorced then. A very grown up way of, uh, of looking at the change in the relationship, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure there were moments that was not so pretty, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's at the end of the day, it was important for her to keep our relationship going and to, to create a safe space. And so after a couple of years of staying in Italy, she decided to um, move to Palm Springs, an area here in Los Angeles. And, and that's actually where I learned my English. I was an Italian baby. My first language was uh, Italian. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so I, I was very, and you know, I'm, I'm stubborn, probably like my dad, (laughs) I'm stubborn. And I was this little Italian girl saying, no, I don't want to learn English. And, um, and so I, I was forced to learn English. And then because my mom, she did speak, my dad spoke five different languages and my mom spoke Italian and Spanish, but because we weren't in Italy, they were always just talking, you know, speak English. And so, uh, surprisingly and unfortunately I did lose my Italian. So oh, I was, uh, I Sophia Loren won't be pleased about that. <laughs> 
No, <laughs> no one tell her. I know. One one question I wanted to ask is: is Do you know why Dean decided to settle in the GDR? Yes, it's really simple. It's for love, right? So he had he had gone on a um, uh, it was a film festival in uh, uh, Leipzig in East Berlin. And there was this beautiful model-like woman in front while he was singing. And she got a backstage pass. <laughs> and she she was at the after party. And they hit it off. And she, she lived in Lipsick at the time. And he thought both it would be, you know, so wherever, if he met someone, you know, from... Spain or from, um, you know, Italy or from wherever, he would end up in that country. So it really was first for love. But then, of course, it was also great because not only has he been talking about socialism and and free education and medical and, and so on, he now can actually live it. And that was something that was important to him. He wanted to live the life in a socialist country so that he can have firsthand accounts and, and examples and, and also tweak, you know, if something that he was talking about really wasn't the right thing, then he would change and then defend that truth. And so it, it was two things. It was Vipka and, and socialism that he, he liked. Right. And do, do you get the impression from from his letters and, and and your research that he discovered that that life in East Germany wasn't the perfect socialist life he he perhaps thought it was going to be? Did he have doubts? Well, you'll have to wait for the answer to that question. There is a second episode next week. If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters to help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the cold war conversation just search for cold war conversations in facebook thank you very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.